All right, we were back. We were talking about Dr. Scott Atlas before the break. And I did have to sort of chuckle at the uniformity of the response over at Stanford to what he has been up to in the Trump administration. In a piece in the East Bay Times by Lisa Krieger, under the subheadline, Trump's new advisor on virus harming public health, top faculty said. The piece starts by noting that in the tight-knit world of academic medicine, scientists pride themselves on presenting a united, unflappable face to those outside their ranks. But last week... In a scathing open letter, dozens of Stanford University Medical School's top faculty denounced former colleague Dr. Scott Atlas for promoting what they called falsehoods and misrepresentations of science. Atlas has made controversial statements about controlling the virus, which has killed more than 200,000 Americans, through natural immunity, meaning let everybody get it. According to the letter, many of his opinions and statements run counter to established science and by doing so, undermine public health authorities and the credible science that guides effective public health policy. Signed by Dr. Philip Pizzo, former dean of the medical school, Dr. Upi Singh, chief of Stanford's Division of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, professor of epidemiology and population health, and 105 others. Among the letter's signatories were many national experts in the university's departments of infectious disease, epidemiology, and microbiology, including Dr. David Relman, who pioneers methods for discovering new human pathogens, and Dr. Lucy Tompkins, who leads Stanford's Department of Infectious Prevention and Control. Atlas, it was noted, did not respond to requests for an interview. He has urged the lifting of business restrictions. He told Fox News back on August 24th that American lives are being destroyed. The lockdown must end. Atlas also said schools should open as quickly as possible. The harms of not opening schools are really tremendous and all that goes with the known evidence that children really have very, very low risk from this illness, he said at a news conference with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on August 31st. The Stanford faculty members challenge his assertions saying the preponderance of data shows that the safest path to herd immunity is through development of safe vaccines, not the actual infection. That crowded indoor spaces can significantly boost the risk of viral spread and that illnesses in children, while uncommon, can lead to serious short-term and long-term consequences, to say nothing about the fact they can then infect their parents. Anyway, we agree with Stephen J. Harper when he points out that in the wake of this, America needs a CDC whistleblower. And now. Harper says, Trump wanted fewer tests. Now he'll get fewer tests. The new guidance gives cover to colleges, schools, and workplaces that don't want to test, contact trace, or close if they get outbreaks. It creates confusion for medical and public health professionals and adds new doubts about insurance coverage for COVID-19 testing. To which he adds, superficially and for a short time, any decline in newly confirmed infections would fuel the false hope that the pandemic is receding. Trump can use such illusory progress as another deceptive COVID-19 talking point just as early voters begin to cast ballots in September. To which he adds, reducing the number of tests won't reduce the number of COVID-19 illnesses hospitalizations, or body bags. It will do the opposite. Just as insufficient testing in the U.S. caused irreparable damage at the outset of the pandemic, Trump's early denials of COVID-19's seriousness, combined with his failure to implement a nationwide testing program, started America down the road to its current catastrophe. 
The U.S. has 4% of the world's population, but more than 20% of the world's COVID-19 deaths. And here's something that should get your attention, if we failed to do so so far. According to the latest projections that the White House has often cited, by December 1st, the country will have a total of 317,000 COVID-19 fatalities and the virus will become the leading cause of death in the United States. The CDC's new guidance repeats Trump's earlier see-no-evil tragedy. Once again, individuals who are unaware of their infections will unwittingly infect others. Many more will get sick and some will die as the pandemic rages uncontrollably and more surreptitiously throughout the land. In his final phone call to Bob Woodward on August 14th, at which time the pandemic was on fire in the U.S. with more than 168,000 Americans dying, 1,300 deaths on that day alone, Donald Trump called Bob Woodward to find out one thing. He recently learned that Woodward's new book was done and would be coming out in September, and Trump wanted to know how he'd be portrayed. CNN obtained excerpts of that 10-minute conversation, I think the shortest one they conducted, showing that Trump was more focused on the economy than the public health crisis. As the two debated Trump's response to the pandemic, Trump finally asked, So you think the virus totally supersedes the economy? Oh, sure. They're related, as you know, Woodward responded. A bit, yeah, Trump replied. Oh, a little bit? I mean, more than a little bit, said Trump, but the economy is doing, look, we're doing close to a new stock market record. Woodward says it's going to be a contest between you and Biden. It's going to be a contest between both of you and the virus. The virus is because... It's in real people's lives, you know, all those tens of millions of people who don't have jobs, don't have, Trump cuts them off. I know. Bob Woodward starts to say, listen, I mean, you and I, to Trump just adds, nothing more could have been done. And we'd like to point out here at Radio Parallax, well, that's not true. CNN noted that after six months of experts trying to convince Trump that the two are linked, that an economic recovery depends on first stopping the virus, Trump is still focused on the stock market and the economy because he believes those are the key to his re-election. When Woodward told him, I mean, there's parts of the book you're not going to like, Trump said, what won't I like, Bob? Woodward said, well, just, you know, it's tough times. The virus, as you repeatedly told me, and as you said publicly, it's derailed things. It's really big in people's lives, as you know. So I will, Trump cuts him off. You know, the market's coming back very strong. You do know that. We've said on this program on many occasions, there isn't just a pandemic going on, there's an infodemic going on. There's a battle to control the narrative that's being waged even more fiercely, actually quite a bit more fiercely than the actual battle to halt the virus, at least in the U.S. of A. And nowhere is this battle over information more clear than the whirlwind surrounding Michael R. Caputo, a name we hope by now you're familiar with. But even if we are, we feel obligated to tell you a little about the background of Michael Caputo because it just speaks volumes about what is going on in this country as regards dealing with the pandemic crisis. Caputo got on the national radar a few days ago when people sort of were up in arms over the fact that he was openly pushing bizarre conspiracies and warning of armed revolt in the United States as regards the national election. Now, a little bit about who Caputo is. He's designated as the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs at the Department of Health and Human Services. And of course, 
Health and Human Services oversees the Center for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, and the Food and Drug Administration. As an assistant secretary, he doesn't head any of these agencies, but he's been put in charge of who gets to talk to the press. He's been put in charge of the information flow. He's been put in charge of who gets to talk to the press, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, his boss, Secretary Azar, and everyone else in the Department of Health and Human Services. Writing in the New York Times a few days ago, Sharon Lafranieri said, the top communication official at the powerful cabinet department in charge of combating the coronavirus made outlandish and false accusations Sunday, that would be September 13th, that career government scientists were engaged in sedition in their handling of the pandemic and that left-wing hit squads were preparing for armed insurrection after the elections. Caputo accused the CDC of harboring a resistance unit determined to undermine President Trump even if that opposition bolsters the COVID-19 death toll. Caputo faced intense criticism, at least from the medical community, for leading efforts to warp CDC weekly bulletins to fit Mr. Trump's pandemic narrative. I can tell you back in the days of being a medical student, the CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly report, the MMWR, was how we were tracking what was going on in the new strange cluster of symptoms that came to be known as AIDS. Historically, it's hard to imagine anything less political than the MMWF, but under Trump, it has been politicized. Anyway, Caputo, who was apparently going off the rails last week and suggested that he personally could be in danger from opponents of the administration. He urged his followers, if you carry guns, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. He went further saying that his mental health was in question and that his mental health had definitely failed. Now, there's one point on which we find some agreement with Mr. Caputo. We think his mental health failed a long time ago. Anyway, we did not see his bizarre rant on Facebook, uh, which has probably been taken down by now, but might be good for some comedy relief. He said things like, CDC scientists haven't gotten out of their sweatpants except for meetings at coffee shops to plot how they're going to attack Donald Trump next. Adding, there are scientists who work for this government who do not want America to get well, not until Joe Biden's president. The article notes a longtime Trump loyalist with no background in health care, Caputo, 58, was appointed by the White House to his post in April at a time when the president's aides suspected the health secretary, Alex Azar, of protecting his image instead of Mr. Trump's. Caputo was put in charge of coordinating the messaging of an 80,000-employee department at the center of the pandemic response. The article notes that in the past, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly reports had previously been so thoroughly shielded from political interference that political appointees only saw them just before they were published. Caputo's 26-minute broadside on Facebook against scientists, the news media, and Democrats was another example of senior administration officials stoking public anxiety about the election and conspiracy theories about a deep state, the label that Trump often attaches to the federal civil service bureaucracy. Caputo predicted the president would win re-election in November, but that his Democratic opponent, Joe Biden, would refuse to concede, leading to violence. And when Donald Trump refuses to stand down at the inauguration, the shooting will begin, he said. The drills that you've seen are nothing. Now, perhaps you're wondering at this point how a guy that seems to be a little bit loosely wrapped is in charge of communication, all the communication of the departments that are involved in 
dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. We were wondering that too, so we took a look at his background. Salon.com did exactly that a couple months ago with an article titled, Why is a right-wing flack and Roger Stone ally in charge of Dr. Fauci's schedule? Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci fell out of favor with the Trump people, and certainly by May, he went a couple of months, during which time he did not brief the president, only doing so again in mid-July. Salon said, last week, the Washington Post published a report titled, Fauci sidelined by the White House as he steps up blunt talk on the pandemic. It revealed that President Trump had not sought the counsel of Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, for at least a month. Salon noted that the 2,500-word report only briefly touched on the official who does the scuttling, Michael Caputo, often described at that time as a conspiracy theorist with racist views. He is closely allied with former Trump advisor Roger Stone. We highly recommend you you check out this piece in Salon.com although we will summarize some of the meaty parts for you right now. Salon got a hold of Caputo when he told them he handles all of Fauci's media and press and has the final say on media calendars for six different doctors and scientists, including Dr. Deborah Burks, CDC head Dr. Robert Redfield, Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and the Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, Admiral Brett Girard, and his boss, HHS Secretary Alex Azar. How did Michael Caputo arrive in this exalted position? Well... Let's go back in time. After he graduated from high school in Buffalo, New York, he left the Army for college, after which he promoted Ronald Reagan's agenda in Central America, working with Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. That's kind of interesting, don't you think? Caputo then worked in media relations for President George H.W. Bush's losing 1992 presidential campaign. Somewhere along the way, he befriended Roger Stone, took up apprenticeship with the modern master of political dark arts. For a while, Caputo was Roger Stone's chauffeur and worked his way into the legendary Manaford Stone and Black PR agency, or should we say notorious agency. We've talked about it in the past. And Manaford and Black is an agency we hope you know something about, dear listener. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Caputo moved to Russia, where he worked for President Boris Yeltsin. Yes, and later he was a consultant charged with rehabilitating Vladimir Putin's image in the United States. This should be raising eyebrows, shouldn't it? Caputo was employed by a Moscow-headquartered subsidiary of Gazprom and was contracted by Gazprom in 2000 to work for Vladimir Putin. And yes, he was tasked specifically with increasing Putin's public relations standing specifically his support level here in the United States. He moved back to the U.S. from Russia in 2000 and got a call from his former mentor, Roger Stone, convincing him to move to Miami and found a media advertising company, Michael Caputo Public Relations. In 2007, he ran a website which was designed to smear New York Governor Elliot Spitzer. And wouldn't you know it, Spitzer was forced to resign the following year amid a prostitution scandal. In 2007... Caputo moved back to Europe, where he advised politicians' campaigns for the parliamentary Ukrainian election. Is this raising any eyebrows yet, dear listener? I I ask you again. At any rate, at some point, Michael Caputo defends Donald Trump. In 2014, he conceived a PR scheme to secure Trump's bid for the Buffalo Bills. He created a fake organization and hired a fake founder, a double amputee cancer survivor, to gin up sympathy. 
If you're interested, Caputo established a shell organization named 12th Man Thunder. The proxy leader he hired was amputee Chuck Sontag, who Trump and Caputo both calculated would garner sympathy. When Trump placed his bid for the bills, he was disallowed ties to that organization. Caputo retaliated by engaging in a smear campaign against other bidders, which included John Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi later claimed he needed years of therapy to get over it. Sadly for both, John Bon Jovi and Donald Trump both lost their bids to buy the Buffalo Bills. In spring of 2016, Caputo joined the Trump campaign but was forced to quit in June when he celebrated the sacking of former campaign manager Corey Lewandowski by tweeting, Ding dong, the witch is dead, adding a picture of the Wicked Witch of the East from the Wizard of Oz with her feet protruding from under the house that crushed her. And yes, we do like to include some colorful details in the narrative on this program. Now, if you'll recall, in 2016, Corey Lewandowski got replaced by Paul Manafort. What a coincidence. At least you can see why it was Caputo was happy to see his old colleague now in charge of the campaign. Now, a month earlier in 2016, while Caputo was still with the campaign, he and Roger Stone met with a Russian expat living in Florida, supposedly named Henry Greenberg. His original name was Henry Okonyansky. He offered to sell them dirt on Hillary Clinton. Now, apparently the Russian, as he was referred to in emails between Caputo and Stone, never did produce that dirt on Hillary Clinton. But the fact that it was being served up by Russians to the Trump campaign did attract the attention of Robert Mueller. At some point, Caputo was called before the House Intelligence Committee to answer questions about all of this. To which he later said publicly, I spent my time in front of the committee dealing with the fact that I had no contact with Russians. I never heard of anybody with the Trump campaign talking with Russians. I was never asked about my time in Russia. I never even spoke to anyone about Russia. I never heard the word Russia. And we did not use Russian dressing. Of course, when Mueller came calling later with the evidence that they had spoken with Greenberg slash Okunyansky, both Stone and Caputo said, oh, oh, we forgot about that. Stone and Caputo later claimed that their memories were refreshed by some text messages they reviewed. And here's the part I like best. Caputo maintained on CNN later, per an article written about all of this in June of 2018, he thought that Greenberg was an American citizen of Russian descent, to which he added, I I had no reason to believe that. I just assumed it. Yeah. Oh, that guy. Oh, we forgot about it. Oh, but, you know, come to think of it, we we assumed he was an American. Let's run the threads here. Ollie North, Boris Yeltsin, Vladimir Putin, Gazprom of the Russian oligarchs, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and ultimately Donald Trump. By the way, last January, when the Senate trial of Trump's impeachment was kicking into high gear, Caputo published a book titled The Ukraine Hoax, How Decades of Corruption in the Former Soviet Republic Led to Trump's Phony Impeachment. The next month, the Senate acquitted Trump, and Stone got sentenced to 40 months in federal prison for obstructing a congressional inquiry into the president, among other felonies. He was, of course, not pardoned subsequently by Trump, but his sentence was commuted, which is pretty much the same thing. The Salon piece notes it's still not clear how or why Caputo's name came before the Health and Human Services Department, but sometime in April, he got hired. That was the month, Salon notes, that Trump had foretold April would mysteriously vanquish the global coronavirus pandemic and also the month when Anthony Fauci's future administration was first seriously thrown into doubt. 
it should not be terribly surprising viewing his history that Michael Caputo is the sort of guy that thinks that anyone in the administration who's producing any medical information, which is at odds with the narrative of Donald J. Trump, is a political enemy and needs to be controlled or silenced. This, needless to say, is, is not a good position for this nation to be in. And by the way, I put out inquiries through emails to, to friends living in other countries, and I, I, I want to report back what they're saying, but I, I need to kind of sift through it and collate it and summarize it. And I didn't, didn't have time to do that. But it is no secret that pretty much in any country you wish to choose, with the possible exception of Brazil, I guess, things are better than they are here. So uh, let, let's, let's, just, let's just move away from the, the subject of, of this, this person who needs to be fired and replaced at the Department of Health and Human Services. We need to get someone in there. Uh, there needs to be, first of all, there needs to be a national outcry over that. And I, and I gather that there is, to some degree, since Caputo did have to apologize here. But it's not enough. He needs to be fired. It's not enough over at the post office to say that, oh my, people are uh, upset about this. Uh, we need to uh, bring it to our attention. No. We need to step up and get the mail sorting machines back in there and have responsible people monitor what's really going on. They are going to make a lot of ballots disappear in November. By the way, we reached out to Greg Pallast, who's been on this program three times, to come on and talk to us about what he knows. He's written a book. I forget the exact title, but I think it's How Trump Stole the 2020 Election. I think he believes that Trump likely will steal the 2020 election, but Greg Palace does, I think, hold out hope we can still stop that. Anyway, if we can get him on the show, we'll talk, we'll talk about that. But I was a little bit startled to take a look at some of the domestic numbers here in America. California has 700 and, uh, I don't know, 70,000 cases, something like that at this point. That means if California was a separate nation, it would rank fifth in the world after the United States itself, India, which has now climbed the number two position, Brazil, and Russia. Although it turns out that Peru and Colombia are not far behind California's total. And of course, all the data in all of the countries of the world are dependent upon testing. And I, I don't think, you know, a country like India, which is now really very close to the U.S., we, we have six plus million and they have five million, India will catch up and exceed the United States total. We predicted this on this program many months ago. I don't see any way around that. But let's take a look at the United States. California, in spite of its, you know, startlingly high numbers, is not doing that bad in terms of cases per 100,000. In cases per 100,000, we come in at 1,921, which means about 2% of Californians have gotten it. But oh my God, in the rest of the United States, in spite of the absolute number being smaller, the number of cases per thousand in, in, in many instances is rather startling. In fact, 17 states are doing worse than we are. One might speculate that some of those states might be the red states, the states where they've been a little bit lax about social distancing and they haven't pushed masks and, you know, they just have a very skeptical viewpoint on all of this. And if you assume that, it turns out, well, you'd be right. I count up three blue states and the District of Columbia, which have a worse rate of cases per 100,000 than California. Those would be Delaware, Washington, D.C., Illinois, and Rhode Island. Among states who were red states, states that voted for Trump in 2016, that are doing worse than California, we have Alabama, Arizona, 
Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. Across America, Florida appears to be winning the COVID sweepstakes. It has 3,080 cases per 100,000, putting it at over 3% of the population in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, of course, has been a leading Trump ally and has pretty much towed the administration's line on most aspects of how to deal with the crisis. And it appears they're paying the penalty for it. Is this surprising? It should not be. It is predictable. We predicted it, not because we're so bloody smart, although we'd like to think that we are, but simply because, you know, it's epidemiology 1A. If you don't rigorously institute measures to prevent the transmission of the disease using what tools you have, like face masks and social distancing, but instead throw parties in Daytona Beach, well, it's going to get bad. We've said it a thousand times, and we may say it a thousand more. If you don't test, contact, trace, and isolate where appropriate, you're not going to do very well. Other nations have done these things. They've done them better than we have. They're not suffering the way we are. It's pretty much as simple as that. All right, I am desperate to talk about something else in the final three minutes of the program. And what better candidate than the possibility of life on Venus? Now, Venus has not been considered a really good place to look for life because if you land on the surface, which the Russians have managed to do several times, you'll find that the atmospheric pressure is 200 times what it is on Earth. Same pressure you'd find like a mile and a quarter down in the ocean. There's that much air on Venus. And of course, the runaway greenhouse effect of that thick atmosphere means that the temperatures on the surface are hot enough to melt lead. So how could you find conditions where life could survive? Well, if you go up in the Venusian atmosphere, you'll eventually find a spot where, you know, the pressure is similar to, to that here on Earth. And you will find water vapor, but apparently it's, it's believed to be, you know, more like sulfuric acid. But decades ago, the ever-optimistic uh, Carl Sagan and others posed the possibility that, if, you know, in those clouds, you might be able to find microbes that could survive. Enter modern scientists looking for signs of life elsewhere. One way to do this is to look for signatures of certain molecules in the atmospheres of exoplanets. But before testing this idea on exoplanets, someone decided to test it on our local neighbor, Venus. They were looking for a chemical called phosphine, which is, well, remember your high school chemistry, if you took ammonia, which is a nitrogen and three hydrogens, and you substitute the thing right below it in the periodic table, phosphorus, with three hydrogens, you have phosphine. The NASA spacecraft Cassini was able to detect the compound in the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn, but it was thought that it couldn't be produced in the smaller planets like Earth or Venus. Well, what do you know? They took a look at the Venus clouds, and there it was. Now, chemists here on Earth can't figure out how it could have been made without the super high pressures you find on places like Jupiter or Saturn. So they're stumped. And the reasoning goes, there's one thing that appears to be very good at producing phosphine, which is anaerobic life, microbial organisms that don't require or use oxygen. Well, it's possible, I guess. The New York Times notes that here on Earth, phosphine is found in our intestines and in the feces of badgers and penguins. And although here at Radio Parallax, we have not researched it thoroughly, we are pretty sure that neither badgers or penguins are sources of the gas in the atmosphere of Venus. And that does it. 
This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we're going to have a lot more to say on next week's program. Please tune in.